0: Today we talk about the California wildfires, COVID vaccines, the Republican National Convention, and how a culture of entitlement negatively affects our politics. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of refining politics and culture. Happy Tuesday, everyone. So looking forward to speaking with you today as we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. We have quite a lot that I would love to cover today, so I'm going to jump right into it. We're actually going to talk about something that I was not intending on talking about until a few hours ago. I felt that the Lord put this topic on my heart last minute to speak about the culture of entitlement that has run rampant throughout our society here in America and other Western cultures. And I want to talk about this in light of our politics as well, how the culture of entitlement, basically this idea that I inherently deserve things simply because I exist— how that has negatively affected and infected our political discourse in the United States. So we're going to get to all of that in a second. But before we do, I want to share a few current event stories that I feel are vitally important for us to understand and to be praying over. So the first is this. At the time of this recording, in my home state of California, we currently have 625 wildfires burning. 17 of which are major fires, including some of the largest in California state history. Over 1.2 million acres have burned. That's nearly the size of the Grand Canyon. And I believe the death toll at the point, at, at the time of this recording, is up to seven people. So, really praying that that stops there and does not go any higher. That's tragic. Also, a quarter million people at the time of this recording are under evacuation orders or warnings. So uh, literally quarter million people that have a severe risk of, of losing their homes and their communities in these wildfires. So absolutely tragic. Would love your prayers for this state. Lord knows we need them. This is something that has plagued our state year in, year out. I'm very thankful for the brave first responders that year after year put their lives on the line to protect the state from fires. And if you've ever met a firefighter, especially one that deals with, well, any firefighter truly, but in the West, a lot of these firefighters that specifically deal with wildfires – it's amazing the the type of stress they put their bodies under and the sacrifices that they make literally putting themselves in harm's way at the potential that they could with the potential that they could lose their lives in order to protect their neighbors if you've ever met one they can tell you it is a brutal job not just on your body but also your schedule and your family life and it's just a tough career and so very grateful if you know a firefighter thank them today so grateful for the the brave first responders across our state as well as actually other neighboring states that have sent firefighters in to assist in the effort. So very grateful for that as well. I get the question often why firefight or excuse me, why wildfires. It seems like California struggles with wildfires so much more than any other state. We it seems to be our natural disaster that we have the greatest struggle with and that's absolutely the case. We do struggle with wildfires more than any other state. We are not the only state that deals with this. At Texas Kansas, Nevada, and Washington round out the top five, I believe. And I actually think it's in that order if I remember correctly. But we are by far and large the one that deals with it the most. We are in this media spotlight related to these wildfires the most year after year as well. Obviously, the the clear answer for that is because we do have a very large state that has many pieces of terrain across the state that are susceptible to wildfires breaking out, these sort of high desert climates where there's a lot of dry brush. Dry heat, high temperatures, high wind, and low rain amounts. So when you put all that together in these summer months, you really create a recipe for disaster where our state is susceptible to these small sparks creating massive burns that, that span 1.2 million acres. Of course, this is a very obscure, not average fire season. The fact that we've experienced what we already have in this year is is a real tragedy, but it is something that we do have a perpetual struggle with as well. Some of the natural reasons are the things I just mentioned, the weather challenges that we have here in the state. You know that if you've ever camped in in California, especially Northern California, in the summer, you know that it is nearly impossible to obtain a fire permit uh, because again it's it's just the risk is so high. If you drop a cigarette butt or if a car engine catches on fire on the highway or if a uh, an electrical storm strikes a Power line and downs a power line, you have a real recipe for an outbreak of wildfires to start from these single events. And so some of these are these natural related issues that cause. California to be in a state where wildfires are such a threat to us. There are also man-made factors that are involved in this as well. So an example of this is our state's poor management of our power grid and our environmental scene in the state of California. There is no surprise, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you've heard me say this in previous episodes, California is largely broken. There is no... There's no hiding that. It is something that California has struggled with over the last 30 years is the perpetuating decrease of quality of life across many different aspects of people's lives, especially for the middle class. That's why there is such a mass exodus of middle class people leaving the state of California year in and year out. Because it is so poorly managed. It's becoming unlivable in many regards. And I love this state dearly, and I desire for it to come into the fullness of its potential into the future. And so therefore, I believe that comes with a healthy dose of needing some criticism in order to change things that need to be changed in order for us to get there. One of the massive things that needs to be changed is the reality that in our state, climate alarmism has taken the front row seat. It has absolutely stolen the wheel, hijacked the car, and it is driving us off a cliff climate alarmists have, these are the people that spew the progressive propaganda that our world is coming to an end in just a few short years. And unless we completely revamp the United States of economy, we are going to lose it. Now, climate alarmists have been saying these sorts of things for the last 50 years, and they keep pushing the timeline back. So there's a a real neglecting of factual realities in the climate alarmist agenda, but that doesn't matter. It's all based on emotion. And so- A great book on this, by the way, is Apocalypse Never. Highly recommend that book. We're going to do a whole episode on environmentalism. I am a classical conservationist, meaning that I believe that the the forests and the ground that the Lord's given us and the oceans that he's given us should be taken care of and stewarded. I am a believer in the national park system. I'm not a believer that we should eradicate all these natural lands and put hotels on them. That is not my desire. Again, I'm a classical conservationist. I believe that we are called to steward land in a rational way. We don't buy into extremism. We pursue rational thought. Unfortunately, in my home state of California, people like me are not given a seat at the table because, again, the steering wheel in California has been stolen by these climate alarmists. And that's how Sacramento has conducted their policies toward utilities, toward our forests good example is our power grid. Much of our power grid is ancient. Some of our power grid, our power lines haven't been updated since the 50s. Our existing infrastructure is dwarfed in spending uh, compared to these new renewable energy deals and PG&E, which is our public utilities here in California has been overrun by government bureaucracy and, and red tape. It is a public utilities company, so that kind of goes without saying. And we have really felt the burden of all this as California citizens because we live in a state where our power grid is completely uh, ancient and not maintained in the way that it should be, while the state is more concerned about putting up solar panels and uh, windmills out in the desert. So while our state is focused on these Green New Deal sort of initiative prospects, the actual challenges that face our state today are being neglected. And these have massive ramifications because faulty power grids and a A dismissal of these actual electric issues that we need to address leads to higher rates of fires taking place. Another common example is the the lack of rational thought in relationship to our forests. So there was a time where rational thought in California led people to say, you know what, we do need proper forest thinning. We need to make sure that we're taking care of our forests and not letting them become overgrown. We're cutting them back in order that they would be sustainable into the future. We are doing controlled burns in fire zones to ensure ensure that the forests aren't just completely burning down year after year because of how overgrown they are. But the environmentalists over the last few decades have come in and said that they're not okay with that. And it's been this big battle in the state. And so now we're at a place today where our forests are overgrown and our power grid is faulty and ancient. Those two things together create a combination where poor management is leading to higher prevalence of forest fires. And then those same people that are managing this crisis will then turn and just blame climate change for everything, for their faulty leadership. When you can actually point to policies that have failed the state of California, but – Again, people won't do that because the vast majority of our California electorate continues to elect these people and believe that they're the really that they're the real people that are going to fight for our environment instead of actual conservationists that are thinking rationally because there are certainly many of us in the state we again we just don't have a seat at the table to speak into it. So I pray that we will more and more into the future. The second story I want to cover is out of ABC News in Virginia. Virginia Health Commissioner says he'll mandate a COVID-19 vaccine. State Health Commissioner Dr. Norman Oliver told 8 News on Friday that he plans to mandate coronavirus vaccinations for Virginians once one is made available to the public. Virginia state law gives the Commissioner of Health the authority to mandate immediate immunizations during a public health crisis if a vaccine is available. Health officials say an immunization could be released as early as 2021. Dr. Oliver says that as long as he is still the health commissioner, he intends to mandate the vaccine. Wild story here. And this conversation will only increase over the coming months as we start to ask the ethical questions about mandatory vaccines. And regardless of how you feel on the issue of vaccines, if you're an anti-vaxxer or you're somebody that is completely for it or you're somewhere in the middle, you have to admit that the proposition to mandate a vaccine for a virus that has a 99% survival rate is a very big deal. And we know that Virginia is not the only state that started to consider this and have conversations about this in 2021. We also know that we are not the only country that's having conversations about this. The Australian prime minister just last week announced that if he has the ability to, he will make the coronavirus vaccine mandatory for his entire nation. And we know that Australia is not the only nation considering that. So this is a big conversation that will only be had increasingly over the next few months. And We're going to start talking a lot and hear more about uh, court cases and precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court in the past and various instances that mirror scenarios like what we're about to be facing and the ethical challenges that will uh, be brought to the forefront because of this, the ethical questions that will be posed. We're going to talk about court cases like Jacobson versus Massachusetts. If you're not familiar with this case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts was a Supreme Court case in 1905 where the court upheld the authority of states to enforce compulsory vaccination laws. So the court's decision essentially articulated this view that individual liberty is not absolute and it's subject to the police power of the state. This was specifically related to an outbreak of smallpox at the time. And the in Massachusetts, there was a, a – Uh, board of health in the city of Cambridge that adopted a regulation ordering the vaccination or revaccination of all of its inhabitants. Somebody challenged it, and it resulted in this case that has essentially set decades, over a century of precedent for how the United States deals with vaccination issues. And so wherever you stand on that decision – the argument of whether or not to vaccinate, whether to vaccinate, should it ever be mandatory, et cetera. We're going to pick apart all the arguments in the next few months. We are going to ask a lot of ethical questions related to this issue as we head into 2021. But the other reason I bring this up right now is just to paint the picture of how far we have truly come from 15 days to slow the spread to now considering mandating a vaccine for a virus that has a 99% survival rate. That is wild. It was just 150 days ago that we were hearing from our elected officials: "15 days to slow the spread. That's it. 15 days to slow the spread, and we will we will pick things back up. We'll begin the process of reopening." Some states said we'll reevaluate, while reevaluating turned into 150 days, and many states like my own are still locked down. We are not fully reopened in the state of California. So, all this to say, I only point this out to illuminate the reality of how far we have truly come, and. There's something that I I hadn't started the podcast yet at the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic, but something that I had a lot of conversation about amongst friends and family is just the reality that if you give government an inch, they will always take a mile. And so I hope that this pandemic has and the response to this has been a big yellow flag to people recognizing that if you give the government an inch, they will always take a mile. If they don't value individual liberty as their and protecting their citizens, individual liberty as the primary responsibility of their job, then they will always take more authority than you even mean to give to them. And so in the coronavirus season, we've seen this played out in a very clear manner. And so I hope it's illuminating for us in the future to say, we need to really be cautious around what we give the government an inch to do. What authority we allow to just be blindly handed over to the government. Because again, 15 days to slow the spread, to mandating possibly a vaccine. Of course, it'll be tested in the courts and this will be appealed and who knows if this will actually ever take place. But at the end of the day, the fact that we've gone that far should be eye-opening to the American public for, again, a virus that has a 99% survival rate. We're not talking the Spanish flu here. So keep a lookout over the next few months. This is a topic that we will talk about a great deal as we come to the end of 2020 and into 2021 related to the coronavirus. Uh, So... Third and final topic I want to talk about related to current events. I want to cover the Republican National Convention. Night one just finished taking place. I actually am recording this episode at the conclusion of the RNC night one. I just watched the uh, the evening in its entirety, and I have a few thoughts from it. Now, these thoughts are not holistic, given that this is just night one. We have only experienced 25% of the convention. We've only experienced afternoon and and evening one. We still have uh, three full days ahead of us, uh, leading up to eventually the conclusion where President Donald Trump will give his formal acceptance speech of the Republican nomination for presidency as the incumbent on Thursday night. But with the first night, it's obviously historic, Time because the first night is historically where the, the, the party lays out its vision and its message for not just the remainder of the RNC, but also the election as a whole coming on November 3rd. So the message tonight was clear, and it's something that I want to talk about. A few observations from night one. Number one, it was a whole different level of quality and professionalism than that of the DNC last week. If you watched the DNC last week or you heard my episode about it, you remember that I mentioned it was essentially a very poorly managed Zoom meeting. I mean, it was it was like one of those Zoom meetings you have at your work where your boss is trying his hardest to make it come together but has only ever used Zoom like once, and it all kind of falls apart. That was basically the entire week of the DNC. It was awkward and poorly timed, and they missed a lot of marks, and people didn't know when they were supposed to speak, and the quality was just not there of someone who is running for the highest office in the land. It's not what you would expect. The Republican National Convention stood absolutely in contrast to that. It was professional. The quality was on. Even CNN admitted tonight, which I did watch CNN. I was watching Fox and CNN's coverage back and forth, trying to get the the full range of perspectives on the evening as the commentary went on throughout the night. And even CNN admitted the quality was just there. They were on it. They were professional. It looked like Trump was running for for re-election of the highest office of the land. It was leaps and bounds higher quality than the DNC. And that matters. That that really does matter to Americans. I don't think it's any surprise that Biden's viewership last week was substantially down from Hillary's leadership at the Democratic Convention, or excuse me, her viewership in the Democratic Convention in 2016. No surprise there. And I I would assume that the Democrats are pretty concerned about that, actually, because in order to win an election, you have to have a somewhat high level of excitement and enthusiasm around your candidate. And so that low of a viewership does not show a high level of enthusiasm, especially when other polls reflect that lack of enthusiasm as well. Second observation I had is that it was such a contrast in content, meaning even the messaging of the two parties could not be more different. Democrats last week really focused on the brokenness of America and focused on the places in which they're ashamed of our country that it is deeply systemically racist and it is broken to the seams and that America, even during the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, in two showings of the Pledge of Allegiance, actually they omitted God from the Pledge of Allegiance. They left under God out. But then in another showing of the Pledge of Allegiance, they, at the end, liberty and justice for all someday. So they added this portion to the end of the Pledge of Allegiance where they actually said that we're not, we don't all have liberty here in the United States, which again is, is not only patently false, but it's also not helpful and very depressing. So with that being said, That stood in contrast to the Republican message, which was one of American greatness and really focusing on the values that have built America that we have spent the last 244 years attempting to live up to. We haven't always done well, but let's focus on the redemption and the steps that have been taken and the moves that have been made and the progress that we've made and let that be the inspiration for the future. There was also, of course, a warning attached to it that, hey, there is a party that is looking to revoke those American values to fundamentally transform the United States, as Tim Scott put it, and that is the Democratic Party. So there was certainly that warning attached to it, but the overall feel of night one was one of great hope, a great love and admiration for America and all the values in which have made us truly a city on a hill. There was a true belief that was consistent across every single person that spoke tonight that America is a wonderful place that has led to such greatness taking place across the world, and the preservation and the advancement of that greatness should be our primary goal, not to tear it down and to call America a vile, racist, sexist place that is the essentially the scum of the earth, which again is is how you would perceive America after watching much of the Democratic National Convention last week. Last week, you had people like Billie Eilish on the camera with a very depressing tone, essentially stating that America is hopelessly broken and that we need somebody like Joe Biden to repair the soul of the nation. And Quick reminder here that Billie Eilish has literally called herself Satan and has taken pictures of herself with 666 uh, written across her forehead and blood coming from her mouth. So I don't know that we necessarily need to be taking policy advice from her. I think we more need to just be focused on praying for her. Uh, So topic for another time. But all that to say, that was the type of speakers that were had at the Democratic National Convention last week. That stood very much in contrast to the speakers at the RNC, which were very hopeful figures. Um, it was a very diverse crowd. There were uh, business owners next to hopeful congressmen and women next to immigrants that had fled socialist regimes. Uh, there were speakers from all various walks of the Republican Party. You had the Matt Gates and the Charlie Kirks speaking just shortly before the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's. It was a very well-put-together night. So they were also very focused on policy proposals. So one thing you would have noticed from the DNC last week is that they were very much just focused on bashing Trump. The entire the entire DNC essentially was a referendum on Trump. That's no surprise to anyone. That's something that even the Democrats are willing to admit, that the DNC was more about how much they hate Trump than how much they actually love America or see a hope for America. And the Republican convention was was different in the sense that they were very policy-focused, so focused a lot on policy proposals and ideals, American values that they seek to defend, from things like the Second Amendment to school choice, opportunity zones, criminal justice reform, limited government, further tax cuts, pro-life causes, standing against China, et cetera. So very policy-focused, which, by the way, fun uh, little study released yesterday about opportunity zones. Opportunity zones attract $75 billion and may lift 1 million out of poverty. This is the Epic Times reporting. Nearly $75 billion in private capital flowed into opportunity zones as part of a bipartisan incentive provided by the tax reform of 2017. That's a Trump administration tax reform to spur investment in the poorest communities of the United States. So qualified opportunity funds raised $75 billion in private capital by the end of 2019, most of which would not have entered opportunity zones without this tax incentive. So huge deal created by the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act Opportunity zones offer tax breaks to private funds that invest in the economically underserved communities. Treasury Department designated more than 8,700 of these neighborhoods throughout the country as opportunity zones in 2018. These are the type of policy moves that were emphasized during this RNC, this night one. So final observation, I would say, is that this was a game-changer. I, again, was watching CNN for much of the evening, and even many of the CNN commentators had a really tough time landing criticisms on this night. I'm trying to be objective as I can here. I'm trying to withhold as many of my biases as possible and just see the evening objectively. It was just by far and large better than the DNC last week. Even people like Van Jones, a CNN contributor and someone who is deeply influential in the Obama administration, admitted that they have to give Trump credit for much of the work he's done for the black community, for communities of color. Van Jones is a black man, so he was speaking directly to that issue praising things like Opportunity Zones and the First Step Act, criminal justice reform, these these efforts that have been spearheaded by the Trump administration. Tonight was a night to actually hear some bipartisan support for the good that President Trump has done. And it was a nice break, not wholly. There were still many facets of CNN and MSNBC that just looked for any little opportunity to uh, downgrade the experience. But at the end of the day, there were these little glimpses of bipartisan support That was a nice break from the hostile language that we are constantly berated with in news coverage 24-7 about the president. So I think this was a game changer. Again, this is just day one. There are still three days to this. We will see if this message holds consistent. But I think if the Republicans keep this up over the next few days and then over the next few months leading into November 3rd, they grow their base and increase their chances significantly of running away with this thing in November. So we will see. It is early to tell. But tonight was definitely a night that changed the game quite a bit. Now with the remaining time that we have together in the episode, I want to cover the culture of entitlement that has run rampant and has massive ramifications for our political discourse in the United States even our faith discourse we're starting to see this and in all transparency like i mentioned earlier i was not going to talk about this today i was actually going to speak on healthcare and was going to talk about some of the different arguments around healthcare, and I felt like God stopped me in my tracks a bit, and I felt like I needed to go deeper before going there, because something that's happened in the healthcare conversation, as well as a few other conversations like free education, uh, open borders immigration, this idea that healthcare is a human right, or free education is a human right, and this belief then enables people, this has been uh, by the way promoted by people like Bernie Sanders, people like even Joe Biden now. Bernie Sanders really brought it to the forefront of the national conversation in 2016 in the election, but these are two principles of of Biden's policy proposals now. Is this idea that healthcare and education are inherently human rights. So just by the fact that you exist, you deserve healthcare and you deserve education. Which means by the way that what what that actually is saying is that just because you exist, you deserve somebody else to provide health care for you and to provide free education for you. And so obviously, a lot of negative ramifications, not just in society and in culture, but in our faith as well. John Piper says, a sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep us from knowing Christ. And that's absolutely true. When I live life believing that there are all these different facets of society that I inherently deserve just because I exist, it holds me back from gratitude. It holds me back from reality and a sense of individual responsibility. And I miss out on all the blessings the Lord gives me along the way and seeing Him as the ultimate provider. And instead, I look to see my fellow man or the state, even worse, as my provider. So more on that in a second. But why, why are we here? Why are we at a place today where for the last decade, our culture has grown and grown and grown this sense of entitlement, that I do just inherently deserve something because I exist? Well, I'd say a few reasons come to mind immediately. One would be the fact that our culture has lost a sense of individual responsibility. And in fact, fact, we've moved toward collective responsibility. So nothing's your fault anymore. It's society as a whole's fault. So if you're facing any disparities between you and another person, if you have any differences in the outcome of... Uh, test results or your economic standing or your ability to get into a good college or your career prospects in the future. It can't be because there's anything wrong with you. It's inherently because something's wrong with the system because you deserve the best just inherently because you exist. And therefore, if you don't get the best, it's society's fault. Take individual, individual responsibility out of the equation. Get rid of that. It is all society's fault. And therefore it's society that has to pay and has to change in order to create create the outcome that you deserve. And there's a great book on this. I've referenced this in the show before. It's called Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. He discusses this excellently about the reality that, hey If you want to go change the world, you should probably go home first and focus on cleaning your room and making sure your house is in order metaphorically before you go out and try to change the world. And Our generation has totally skipped over that. We believe that the world is the big issue and we see individual responsibility of no merit and therefore it's all about these social justice movements and activist movements while completely neglecting any individual responsibility. It really holds us in this place of entitlement where we don't actually work to get to a place where we are able to earn a perspective that would gain us a seat at the table to speak into society's ills. In fact, we believe the very opposite. Just because I exist in the world, I should have an ability to uh, dictate the way the world runs. So the disregard for individual responsibility has certainly played a part in why we as a culture have allowed for entitlement to perpetuate. The, the second thing I would say is that we've lost gratitude for what we have. And instead, we focused on what we don't yet have. And so when we live an ungrateful life, we are constantly focusing on what we don't yet have, believing that we deserve more. And I'm in a spot where humility is out the window. Pride is overwhelming. And my entire focus of my being becomes on it. it focuses on what do I not yet have and how can I get it and why don't I have it yet? So gratitude is really the key to confronting an ungrateful spirit, especially. Uh, The the third thing I'd say is that parents, schools, even churches at times have reinforced this message that simply because I exist, I'm deserving of a certain standard of life or certain royalties. Part of this is uh, really flamed on by the participation metal culture that I grew up in, this idea that my generation deserves things simply because we're here. And because we're special, we deserve certain outcomes in life versus certain opportunity. So there's the big difference. Remember, it always comes back to equal opportunity. Excellent. We should fight for that. Equal outcome. No, that's collectivist. That's not a good thing. That leads to really dangerous places. Well, our generation has been taught that unless you have equal outcome, unless you have the outcome you desire, Again, it's society's fault. There's nothing wrong with you. And so therefore, you're not getting what you're entitled to. And a lot of this has been subliminal. It hasn't been purposeful. A lot of times it's out of a fear of confronting children. Out of times it's a a desire to be a friend more than an authority figure. There's a lot of reasons for this. But at the end of the day... I live in a generation today where something we really struggle with, and we're a great generation. Millennials are amazing, and they contribute a lot to society. But one thing that we really struggle with being self-aware is that we do tend to believe that if the world isn't handed to us on a silver platter, that inherently something's wrong with the world, and that it doesn't require as much out of us, or that it shouldn't inherently. And so that that's another reason why I would say, and probably the the third reason I would say, there's a lot of others that would contribute to why this culture of entitlement has run so rampant, but those are the three big ones. So how does this negatively affect politics, culture? Well, one way is that when we allow for a culture of entitlement to creep its way into our politics, we begin to see the government as our savior from the issues we perceive as Uh, disparities systemically. So we hope that the government will, quote unquote, provide for us, when in reality, the government's primary task is not to provide for us. That's constitutionally false. The government's primary task is to protect our ability to provide for ourselves and our communities. So it's really dangerous when I look to the government to be my savior or provider, especially my primary provider. So the the other thing that we often forget with this too is that when I say the government— And when we in society say that the government should give us free health care, what we're in in essence saying is that my neighbor should give me free health care because who funds the government? My neighbor. We all do. We're the taxpayers. So I really want us to get into a spot where we begin thinking whenever somebody says that the government should provide a certain welfare benefit – Whether it be any sort of food stamps, whether it's housing benefits, whether it's immigration perks, healthcare, I want us to stop thinking – at least this would be my desire – the government's providing that and it's somehow detached from the populace because in reality, it is the, the people. It is your neighbor that is paying for these perks, free college tuition, the erasing of student debt that's been federally subsidized, which is a crazy premise in the first place. But all this to say, these are, these are policy proposals that are on the table from the Democratic Party agenda, just honestly, as we head into this fall election cycle. And these are things that you will hear a lot of people say these are government benefits, but at the end of the day, when they say they're looking for the government to provide these benefits, what they're actually saying is that they're looking at you to provide these benefits against your will, something you did not get to choose, and it is a forced sense of compassion. And that leads me to the, the second way in which this negatively affects our politics. We begin as a culture to believe that we're inherently entitled to others' provision, So in the healthcare debate, I believe, if I believe that I'm entitled to healthcare as a human right, then that means that I am entitled to you providing healthcare for me. Because again, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Free healthcare is not free. I spent a chunk of my childhood in Canada and I can speak to the fact that free healthcare is not free. I love Canada dearly. The Canadian people are amazing and there are so many facets of that country that are so beautiful. But the healthcare system is not what it's cracked up to be. And it is certainly not free. They absolutely pay for it in taxes. So when people say the government should provide free health care, what they're saying is that you should provide free health care for your neighbor against your will. And it should be something that the government then controls how it's dispersed. And distributed. Oh, also, you don't have a say over any of your neighbors that you're providing for's lifestyle choices or habits. So, what you're essentially asking is in the free healthcare debate if you believe healthcare is a human right and that the government should provide it for you, you are in essence saying, hey, neighbor, you should provide, and the government will force you to provide with your hard earned tax dollars financial compensation for healthcare purposes for your neighbor, your other neighbor that's a chain smoker does not eat well, does not take care of him or herself, and yet you're expected to pay for that person's health care. You don't get a choice in the matter. It's just forced upon you, which is interesting because even if you look at car insurance companies, if a car insurance provider finds out you had three accidents, they're going to up your premiums. Well, you never get a say on the health history of your neighbor your neighbor could have issues that derive from them taking care of themselves poorly, and yet then you're going to ask your other neighbor to provide for that person? They may want to do that, but let them do that out of the kindness of their heart, not because it's forced from the government down. It comes back to this thing of forced compassion is not compassion. We see it in the immigration debate. There's such a, a desire for f- this open-border sort of immigration, and isn't that what Jesus would have wanted, and isn't it kind and compassionate? Again, who's paying for that system? Who's paying for our population to grow in the United States of undocumented people? doesn't mean we don't love them. It means that if you separate compassion from order, you end up in a society where people's compassion is taken advantage of. So love your neighbor well and ensure that their tax dollars are being used in an appropriate, orderly manner. Allow for immigration in a constructed way where people can't abuse the system. Welfare benefits. If you desire to make your neighbor pay for his neighbor to live on food stamps, shouldn't there be some incentive to get that person off of food stamps? Shouldn't the incentive be there to make sure that they're not using drugs and that they're making positive life choices, that they're seeking employment? Because if you honor your neighbor's tax dollars at all, wouldn't you believe that you would want to protect them and make sure that they're not being used for a purpose that is an abuse of their compassion? Progressive tax structures, redistribution of wealth, free college tuition, it's all the same. Free college tuition, if I believe free college is a human right, that I should be able to go to community college, like Biden has said, for free, then what I'm essentially saying is that I have no problem facing or forcing my neighbor to pay for someone else's degree. They don't get a say in what they study. They don't get a a say in the career prospects afterwards. They could go study lesbian dance theory, and it doesn't matter. You don't get a say in the matter. They could go and study a degree that has no ability to produce wealth in the future and it doesn't matter. You don't get a say in the matter. And that's a really unfortunate abuse of compassion. But that is what happens when we believe in a society that we are inherently entitled to things just because we exist and that it's the government's role to provide for them. The crazy deception in that is that it's never actually the government providing it. It's always your fellow neighbor. So next time you hear oh, the government should provide free health care. No, 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 wait, 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 stop. You are saying your neighbor should provide free health care. And there's a lot of ethical challenges to that. So let's explore that a little further. We can have this conversation about Social Security and Medicaid, and we'll have all these conversations. But this is important. That's what happens in a culture of entitlement. Third way in which a culture of entitlement affects our politics is that by building policies on entitlement, we're emphasizing greed. So if I desire for my neighbor to pay for my college degree just because at the hands of a mandated government order, that is a form of greed. Because guess what? My neighbor may not want to pay for my college, and therefore it's a forced compassion. Not only that, my neighbor doesn't have any say in what I study. Not only that, my neighbor may have actually worked in his way through school or her way through school to pay for their own education. So by me forcing for them to who did the system differently and put up individual responsibility in order to pay for their education, for me to force them then to use those hard-earned dollars to pay so that I don't have to go through that same experience, that is greed. There's no other way to put it. And then for the audacity for the church to come along and celebrate that greed, I know that it's deceptive, and I know it doesn't sound like greed on its face. It sounds like, wouldn't it be nice for the government to provide free college for people so that we can all have an opportunity to experience life after the, okay, that's all fine and dandy. It's not the government providing it. It is your neighbor. You are forcing your neighbor to provide for somebody else's education. That is what's happening there. And we're emphasizing greed. And it's not okay. And the, the argument on the other side is that, well, everybody then will have opportunity for education, so you're not just providing for one person's education, you're putting into this pot, and then from there, it's dispersed evenly. But again, it still boils down to the problem of you don't have any say in in who pulls from the pot and what it's pulled for. It's still the same problem. It's just on a more macro scale. Fourth way that this affects our politics, and, and I'll finish with this here, a lot of the The entitlement spirit in our generation and again, not just the millennial generation, but in this culture, of this modern day in general, has to do with this instant gratification culture. So this idea that because I have this unlimited access to the world's information, I have grown up with this ability to access things at my fingertips. Like when I want them, they are there in my ability to access information or resources. So what will happen is that will shortcut my work that is put in to find actual solutions. So it goes back to this piece of us as a generation getting hooked to the headline culture. I don't want to actually put in the real work to try to figure out my opinion on something. So I'll just watch this cable news host and base my opinions off of what they say. I won't bother to do the research or actually dig in and read because that takes too much time. I'd rather just have the instant access information. That's really dangerous for our politics. We don't want to go down a road like that because we're, we're building then a young generation of uninformed people. And when we're uninformed, we basically turn into useful idiots. We don't want to be that. We want to be useful because we're informed and we're able to contribute to society and know what we're contributing and know why we're contributing it, know why we believe what we believe and move forward on those premises. So this this culture of entitlement that I'm entitled to know the answer now has kept me from putting in the work necessary in order to formulate my opinions, do the research in order to understand why I believe what I believe and move forward on that basis. Very important for our political future in the United States to prioritize that moving forward. So I hope that this section of this episode was a helpful precursor to many other episodes that we will have related to these specific election issues like healthcare, immigration, housing, tax structure, etc., I felt it was important to start here because we need to start having our our antennas up for when we hear government funded, when we hear the word free, when we hear government benefits or welfare, it's important to understand that there is a fine line that needs to be drawn between what is actually a human right and what is me believing that I'm entitled to something that then in turn my neighbor has to provide for me. Because that is a clear line that we need to make sure we're drawing in this coming election. I'm not saying that I believe that we shouldn't have any taxes at all. I believe that there is a price to play here. I believe there's a price to admission in the United States. I I am not attempting to say anything otherwise. I am rendering to Caesars what Caesars. I see the value in that. But at the end of the day, I do think our, our country has gone way overboard in what we believe as a polis, a populace, a society that we are inherently entitled to. And so we're going to break that down issue by issue in coming episodes. With that being said, it has been an absolute blast to cover these issues with you today. Looking forward to speaking with you all again on Thursday. I wanted to close with this. I have been so grateful for the the multiple comments I've gotten and people reaching out saying, hey, how can we support the show? I'm so grateful for that. Uh, As you know, I I recently introduced the ability to donate on my website to the show. If you would feel led to do that, that would be amazing. You can do that at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. The piece I really want to emphasize this week is the importance of Apple podcast reviews. So I've learned so much in this process, so many fun things that I did not know going into this experience. One of the things that I've learned is that gaining reviews on Apple Podcasts can help your show grow tremendously. So It would be a massive support if you would not mind taking a few minutes out of your week this week and leaving me a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That would be incredible and it would mean so much to me. You can find the link to the Apple Podcast page in the description of this podcast here. If you're listening to this on Apple, of course, then you're already there. But for anybody else, you can find that in the link of this description or you can find it on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. And with that, I hope you all have a great next few days. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.